Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, a podcast from Summit Dog Rescue in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Emily. And I'm Libby. We're both professional dog trainers with multiple certifications in dog training and behavior. Together, we have more than two decades of experience in dog rescue. We want to share everything we've learned along the way with other folks involved in dog rescue, sheltering, fostering, and adoption, and anyone who just loves dogs. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And today we are bringing you our interview about puppy socialization that we first uh, released a few years ago. And we decided to re-release this now in light of the new canine respiratory virus that's going around, which I'm sure you've heard about it. So we don't know that much about this virus at the time that we're recording this. Um, And we just wanna say we're not veterinarians. We always recommend that you talk to your vet about this and follow your vet's advice while continuing to safely socialize your puppy. Um, We talk in this interview about why puppy socialization is so crucial. And there's a limited window for exposing your puppy in a positive way to the things that they're going to encounter as adolescents and adults. So as much as we want to just, you know, wrap them up in bubble wrap and never take them anywhere to protect them from the world, if you really want to do your puppy justice and have a solid dog, you want to learn about how to carefully socialize your puppy in the world. And that goes for any of the viruses. There's distemper, there's parvo. So there's always a risk to taking your puppy out of the house. But the science always has said that the benefits outweigh the risks. Now, this is a new virus that, you know, no one's sure about. So we thought we would re-release so that you're empowered with the information and you can make the right choices for your puppy based on your comfortable Um, your comfort level and what your veterinarian recommends. Yeah. So, and, you know, we just came up with a couple ideas for you based on your personal risk tolerance profile, you know, what risks you're comfortable taking, you know, we've seen where we are, we've seen things like um, people are forming puppy pods. So all of the puppies in the pod have a similar risk tolerance. They are engaging in similar activities outside of the pod that might mean um you know the the puppy pod is kind of the only interaction they have with other dogs they're not going to dog parks or anything like that but they still have an opportunity to interact with other dogs in a healthy way i love that idea i feel like if if you had you know three or four friends with puppies or if you could find a social group in your community And everyone was being really cautious, um, but you had these puppies playing together. I would caution anyone who's doing a puppy pod, since you wouldn't have a professional present as you would if you were in a puppy class, is that you go online um, and we're going to put a link in the show notes about just learning something about healthy play, because you want to make sure that all the puppies are having fun and that no one's being bullied, no one's cowering in the corner, and what to do if that's happening. There's something called consent testing. And, you know, if if they're seemingly really wild, but they're both engaged, then, you know, perhaps the play can continue. Or maybe you like separate them for a second and do like a calming activity 
and bring them back in. But we we will put links in the show notes and even on our social media onto like how to recognize healthy play for your puppy. Because as we know from puppy socialization, like the act of playing, if it's not monitored carefully, you could be teaching your puppy something you don't want them to do. So, you know, you, you have to, with everything, information will help. Absolutely. Some other options, you know, a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of facilities and trainers who do in-person classes are choosing to continue those classes just with a little more strict sanitation protocols and, you know, screening their dogs for symptoms before they allow them into the class. You know, here in Colorado, uh, Summit Dog Training in Fort Collins and NoCo Unleashed in Loveland are two groups that are continuing to do classes with really, you know, they're being very careful about it. And so if you can find a facility like that in your area that's informed, then that's another really great choice. Boulder Humane is still doing their puppy clubs. They were instructed to not have any shared water bowls. So a couple of times during puppy club, the puppies all go in their kennels, get their individual water bowls, and then come out and continue the play. And then obviously strict sanitation in between classes, which any good puppy class will do regardless because there's diseases that puppies can get and dogs can get. Yeah, like you said, there's so many viruses out there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and if you're really still risk averse and none of these options sound okay to you, uh, you can still socialize your puppy by doing kind of the less interacting with other dogs and more of observing, watching the world go by. As you'll hear in our, in the episode, there's a lot more to socialization than just interacting with other dogs. You know, you could take a blanket out to the park lay it out. They don't have contact with the grass, but they're watching the world go by. You're making all of these new things that they see, bikes, cars, kids, strollers, other dogs across the park. You're making those into positive and or neutral experiences, and they're still getting that low level exposure. Yes. And as Marge and Eileen speak about in this episode, which is priceless episode, um, you know, you want to create positive associations. So when they see those new things, you pull out the toy and do a little game playing or you pair those experiences with food. Bring some of their kibble, bring a little chicken in a bag and, you know, sit in the back of your car and just watch, you know, people going into Home Depot. Yeah, all of that counts as puppy socialization. And again, listen to the full interview to kind of really get the explanation on that. So there are a lot of options for continuing to socialize your puppy. And we just, we really hope that you will listen to this episode and, you know, share it with some friends who have a new puppy or share it in your puppy pod so that everyone is informed about the importance of what you're doing and how to do it positively. Yeah, we just want to make sure that like, you know, we don't have another batch of COVID puppies in a year of, you know, poorly socialized anxious canines out in the world because the media blows everything up. Um, We're also going to link to a really great blog called Worms and Germs. And it's a canine internist veterinarian up in Canada who goes really in depth about the risk factors versus the, you know, what we're hearing in the media. 
Yeah, so definitely, you know, do some self-education on this. Talk to your vet. Uh, something that Emily brought up earlier before we started recording was that, you know, in some areas, it might, your vet might not have seen a single case and it might be less of an issue for you. So talk to your vet um, and come up with your own personal risk profile for your family and your puppy to decide what's best for you. I think that's brilliant. One other idea is um, Kim Brophy, the applied ethologist that we love and talk talk about a lot in this podcast, has um, the Carl hack, which is using um, a fake dog, Melissa and Doug, um, on Amazon. You can buy or you know your local toy store sells these fake dogs, and um, there's videos on YouTube if you put in the Carl hack with a K. And you're basically animating this fake puppy to let your puppy play and learn some play skills and some fun interaction with an anim- a, a stuffed dog. Yeah, and it's just kind of a way if, if you're reducing your puppy's exposure to other dogs and you're finding that, oh boy, we're coming across the witching hour at five o'clock every day and they're getting a little a little wound up, this can kind of just be a safe way to for them to discharge that energy that they have. I use it with every foster puppy I have. Yeah, def- well, we'll try to find a, a YouTube video and link that in the show notes as well. And then I'm going to be watching Jenny Fathman's puppy. She has a new border collie puppy who I think is like maybe 10 weeks old right now. And similarly, we'll probably be posting on our social media, some videos of like how we're going to be carefully socializing her new puppy rocket without, you know, taking him into situations that could be too risky. Marge Rogers is a certified professional dog trainer and canine behavior consultant. She has thousands of hours teaching owners, dogs, and other canine professionals. She is a CBCC knowledge assessed, CPDT knowledge assessed, CCUI, and a certified fear-free professional. Eileen Anderson writes about her life with multiple dogs with a focus on describing positive reinforcement-based training to pet owners and beginner trainers. Her well-known blog is Eileen and Dogs and has been featured on Freshly Pressed by WordPress.com and won the award the Academy Applauds in 2014 from the Academy of Dog Trainers. She has a Master of Music and a Master of Science. Here is our amazing interview with these most incredible ladies. Right. Welcome to Pod to the Rescue, Eileen Anderson and Marge Rogers. Hi, Hi. we're glad to be here. Thank you for having us. We're excited to talk with you about this topic. We've really been looking forward to this conversation. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, we have not covered puppy socialization on the podcast yet. So this is like hugely important. (laughs) We agree. (laughs) So let's start by defining for our audience, what is socialization? Okay. This is Marge, I'll take that. Um, What we know about how puppies develop behaviorally is that we have a limited time to expose them to the things they're going to encounter during the course of their lifetime. Right up until the time a puppy is around 12 weeks of age, they are more likely to approach things um, in their environment. Uh, This is sort of nature's way of 
um, priming them for the rest of their life. We call this critical period in their development, the sensitive period for socialization. And once that socialization window, if you will, starts closing around 12 weeks of age, puppies then become less likely to approach new things in their environment. And if they encounter something later that they weren't exposed to as little tiny baby puppies from like five weeks to 12 weeks is actually the sensitive period for socialization. Their most uh, primary response is most naturally going to be a fearful response or most likely to be a fearful response. And why that is so important is we can take advantage of this critical period in their development and introduce them in a positive way, help them form positive associations with the things they're going to encounter during the course of their lifetime. The veterinarian, nail trims, handling, new environments, novelty, new things. This sensitive period for socialization is a magical time in puppies' development and their behavioral development. And the clock is ticking. I mean, it really is a finite period to really, we want to look at what our dog's life is going to be like when they're a year old or two years old, the kinds of things we want to do with them. And then we want to help them form positive associations with those things when they're little tiny baby puppies. So it sounds like the puppy is naturally more curious between five and 12 weeks, and they're more likely to be open to new experiences. Is that right? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And we really want to take advantage of that time because we know that puppies who are kept in isolation during that time period, not exposed to a lot of people, not exposed to new environments, they're more likely to be fearful. And that's important to know for everybody because fearful dogs are more likely to bite. So why does the appro appropriate puppy socialization program matter for dog guardians, rescues, and shelters? What you mentioned fearful dogs later on, but why is it so important to get it right? Oh, that's a great question. You Oh, and what an opportunity for these, uh, these guardians, whether they're fostering or whether they're adopting, what a, what a fabulous opportunity to set this puppy up or the, these puppies up for success in the rest of their life. They have the ability or the opportunity to shape whether that, that those puppies view the world as a fun, enjoyable place or a place that is scary and they should be wary. And that's important to know because we want to give them the skills that are gonna keep them in homes. You know, that first adoption as their little tiny baby puppies and cute little fur balls, um, that's important, but that they're not gonna stay little for very long. And, uh, you know, oftentimes people think it's cute when a little puppy seems a little startled or scared. Oh, look, he's scared. Um, but we really don't want to do that because we want to raise confident puppies and puppies who look to interact with people who are affiliative, who are not afraid if a stranger walks, you know, past their sidewalk and 
uh, or they see a child riding a bicycle down the street and our golden, golden opportunity to influence that, that future behavior is when the puppy is between five and 12 weeks of age. Got it. So no matter who is taking care of the puppy, whether it's a shelter, um, a breeder, a rescue, a foster home, or their forever home, this time period is really crucial. It really, really is. And we can't get that back. We want to make sure we're taking advantage of this multiple, you know, the puppy's temperaments are more plastic or moldable, if you will, during this period. And uh, for folks who are fostering, we love the puppy culture program. I've donated that to rescues and shelters. We believe so much in it. It really is more than just loving them. And puppies are not blank slates. There is so much we can do to influence their future success. And it's fun, right? So it's about introducing puppies to things that they're going to encounter during their life. Handling, foot handling, um, people of different ethnicities, novelty. I've had owners who had dogs who, if you moved a house plant from one side of the room to the other, they would bark at it or stand and bark at package deliveries or packages that you brought into the home. That, that was that novelty, something new and different. What's happening here caused a fearful reaction. And not only um, we worry because fear can either be exhibited through escape. You know, we talk about fear, fight, flight, or freeze, right? So sometimes it's flight, but sometimes it's fight. Um, And we also don't want the dog to spend the rest of their life worried about things they're going to encounter every day. So there is so much owners can do. They're going to spend time with the puppies or foster families. They're going to spend time with the puppies. They're going to play with them. There's a few simple things that are outlined beautifully in the puppy culture program by Jane Killian if they're fostering a litter. And then once they adopt that puppy at, you know, eight weeks of age, that they can continue that process. Or um, if that didn't happen for the puppy in his prior life, they can start that process right away and take advantage of the time that is left. So can you explain a little more the process of socialization? Is it pairing experiences with food or just general exposure or is play involved? I'll take that one. This is Eileen. Um, We take advantage of something called classical conditioning, um, which we're all, it's happened to all of us. Every one of us has had something, one thing happens and then something great happens after it. You know, you hear the ice cream truck. And then there's ice cream and those good feelings about the ice cream bleed backwards to where you hear that sound. It might not even be the bell. It could be the engine and you think, oh, wow, you start feeling good. We use that with puppies and we use it with both food and play because puppies both like both of those things a lot. And we do it with anything novel. And with a baby, baby puppy, a chair could be novel. And one of the really important things, two important things, one is that we want the novel item to appear first. If you get it the other way around, sometimes once in a while, it's okay. But we want the novel item to predict the food 
or the fun game of tug or throwing the ball. That's one thing. And the other thing is that we wanna go at the puppy's pace and we want it to go slowly. So I'm looking right now at one of my kitchen chairs that rolls. So if I had a new puppy who'd maybe never seen a chair that rolls around on the ground and moves, I wouldn't stick the puppy in the kitchen and go over the chair and roll it and throw the puppy a treat. That would be too fast for most puppies. What I would do is I'd get the puppy in there. Puppy might look at the chair, hey, treat, you looked at something new. Puppy might go close to the chair. Hey, look at this, we're gonna play tug or something. And once I got around to moving it, I would not shove it across the room. I just give it a little nudge. It's like, oh, the puppy says that thing can move. But look, I just got, you know, this wonderful treat in my face again, so it must be okay. So we use that classical pairing to make the good associations of food and of play. And I'll defer over to Marcia because she's so good at using play with socialization. I have done it some, but I mostly used food. But we want those good feelings about those things the puppy likes to bleed backwards into new things. And sooner or later, if you do this enough, just about anything new in their environment is gonna make them look at you and like, oh, wow, I bet I'm gonna get a treat. You know, and that's what we want. And it, that doesn't happen forever because many of these things will be naturally interesting and reinforcing and fun for the puppy. But those first exposures, that's when you want to get it right because you don't know if your puppy's just going to be naturally gregarious and curious and take everything in stride or be tend to be more scared. So we err on the side of caution because there's no harm in that. And we use those predictions to give the puppies good feelings about new things. I grew up in rural Vermont and we just had dogs roaming the neighborhoods and the dirt roads and they all seemed really well socialized. And in your book, you talk about how our lives have changed. So can you explain how our culture has changed and it changes the way we need to raise puppies? Yes, that one's mine too. I love that question. Um, that, that happened to Marge and myself as well. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and in rural areas and she grew up in the suburbs. And we're of the age where, you know, in the morning, the parents turn out the dogs and the kids and they run around the neighborhood. And I think in that time when the dogs were more part of the community in these certain areas, probably not everywhere, but they were more part of the community from the beginning of their lives, they got exposed pretty early on and usually in a pretty fun way to the things that were going to be parts of their lives. And we kind of look back at that as idyllic, you know, of course, the sad side was that, you know, some got hit by cars or they were not as safe as they are now. But the safety that we give now, you know, my dogs are mostly in their backyard. They do not interact with other dogs going by. They don't interact with kids, adults, anything like that. They have a more sequestered life. That's one of the reasons we need to change. But I would also question the kind of idyllic idea we have, because if you took one of those um, rural dogs and took them to New York City, they'd probably be scared. They were not socialized to that particular environment. Hopefully they never needed to be. Um, if you took them in the in my work environment I used to go to, we had to go up an elevator. You know, and it's like if you take a rural dog and get them to go in that space and it moves around, that's going to be scary. And so I think socialization has changed because 
dogs are both more part of our families, but they also are more sequestered just because of that's how our society has developed. So we have to be more proactive about doing these exposures. And a big theme of our book is to expose them to the things that you and you can predict they're going to be seeing later in their life. And so if there were one of those farmers that said, hey, we're going to go to New York City every other weekend, you know, it would be really good if they'd taken their puppy there, you know, for careful exposures to New York City. And in the same way, Marge often tells people, you know, if your puppy is born in the summer and you have grandkids coming for Christmas, your puppy needs to see children now. And it's the same idea all around. We try to anticipate what it is that's outside of just their everyday environment that they may need to be exposed to and be kind of organized about it. Right. That's interesting. So if you have a litter of puppies in the summer, you probably want to put on a bulky coat and some snow boots and do gentle pairing of good experiences with winter things because that window closes. Absolutely. So how do you balance this going slow with anticipating things that they'll eventually be exposed to? I'm thinking of a lot of families this day and age like to take the dog to soccer games. And if the dog enjoys that and is properly socialized to going to a kid's soccer game, that could be great, but there's a lot going on. How do you do that and not overwhelm a puppy? Oh, that, that's a great question. <laughs> I, we talk in the book about graduated exposures and intensity of exposures. So we always like to start small with socialization and then grow the experience to make sure that the puppy is forming positive associations. And we set out to do these things uh, with our focus on the puppy. So if I am busy watching my kids playing soccer, I'm not watching my puppy and I don't know if he's hiding under my chair in fear every time somebody walks by or if he's sitting next to me um, just watching and curious and I'm missing opportunities to pair those new experiences with food or play. So we're really asking owners to have a plan on how they're going to expose their puppy to the world where their focus is on their puppy. And we're asking owners and um, puppy raisers to start small and then build the exposure. So most likely if somebody's going to be going to children's soccer games, they have some children in the home. So there's some exposure to that already even before they go to the soccer games. Um, having friends over for play dates or another way to do that um, in the front yard, observing children playing in the front yard would be a lower intensity version than going to a new place with a lot of children. So there's a lot of ways to break that down. And again, we want to make sure that someone has the job, usually an adult at this age, uh, for the puppies to uh, make sure the puppy is having positive associations with those new experiences. I just want to throw in that Marge has this perfect picture in the book of what you're talking about. And it's a picture of a very young puppy, Zip, on a mat, looking at a sidewalk, and you can just see these children's legs going by. 
and they're going, they're going to a sports event. But one of the other really great things about that is that they had some place to go. So they didn't come and swarm the puppy. It was that not all of us can get that perfect of a setup, but that always comes to mind as a really good way to just even get things started. Pick a place where the puppy can see the things, but the the puppy will not necessarily act as a magnet for everybody's attention. Oh, I love that. During the lockdown, I remember Behavior Vets had a post um, where they had an exercise called Park It, where you literally would go to a park, put down a blanket, and just sit with your puppy and watch from afar and feed them treats. And I just think that was such a great exercise. People think that like you need to swarm your puppy, but what you're saying is really just watching, having that distance and low intensity exposure and some treats or play is so much more beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the favorite things um, I like to do is find a playground. Uh, when I'm out with the owners, we find a playground, but we, we're quite a distance away from the playground. And we just you know, play and interact with the puppy and the puppy can watch and see the experiences. Um, when Zip was a puppy, we don't have children. So I was really concerned that he have some exposures to that. So I found a school and the play yard was fenced in. So there's a physical barrier keeping the children separate from the puppy. And we started across the street, just playing and walking and doing training games. And he got used to the higher pitched voices and the squeals and the playing and the running. I love that. I also was struck, um, chapter four is completely devoted to body language. And I was struck by your quote, you can't effectively socialize your puppy to the world if you can't tell what he is saying with his body language. So can you discuss body language and body language and why it's so crucial for puppy raisers to understand and really all dog guardians to understand? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, part of the reason that we wrote the book was born from me fielding calls from owners who had done what everybody told them to do. You know, what the breeder told them to do, what the rescue group told them to do you know, keep your puppy home, don't do this, or take them everywhere. You know, they tried, they, they diligently did, they, you know, followed the advice they were given from people who were authority figures to them. Um, I remember one client in particular, she took her puppy everywhere, and she traveled across the country in a plane, and to visit family and she took her puppy and she held her puppy and lots and lots of people met and interacted with the puppy. Unfortunately, the puppy was held the entire time and she couldn't read the body language of the puppy and the puppy, as the puppy's ability to express his body language was inhibited by being held. And then usually when somebody wants to see our puppy, we're like so proud and so excited. We want to show them off and we're looking at the person making eye contact if we have good social skills, right? And, you know, the puppy is almost an afterthought. Like, isn't he so cute? And oh, he keeps me awake and all of these things. And we have no idea if the puppy is forming a positive association with those people and those interactions or if he's terrified. 
So through the best of intentions, so many owners call me and again, through their rescue that where they adopted the puppy or the breeder, oh, they said, take them everywhere. Cause you know, they're a little bit shy and the puppy was overwhelmed. So they were doing the opposite of socialization. Instead of helping the puppy form positive association, the puppy was having terrible experiences meeting people and he was becoming sensitized or more afraid. So uh, in my experience, the, the piece of information that wasn't getting out to owners and dog guardians was um, that exposure alone is not enough. It has to be a positive exposure. And you can't tell if it's a positive exposure unless you can read the puppy's body language. I love that. Especially I was going to ask Eileen next about flooding, which is basically what you were speaking to. She has an excellent article on her blog site about flooding. So Eileen, can you explain flooding? Sure. Um, flooding is a sad situation, which unfortunately sometimes to us humans seems like it ought to make sense. You know, throw the kid in the pool and they'll learn to swim. Uh, that's the classic and very sad example. But flooding is putting a, a person or an animal in a situation with something they're scared of and they're not able to leave. And that sounds awful. You know, you, you think of the room full of spiders or, you know, for a puppy, you know, a room full of vacuum cleaners going around or, you know, and they're locked in there with it. It's often not as dramatic as that. We caution, for example, in some of the puppy classes, you know, there's an old version of pass the puppy where everybody grabbed their own puppy and then passed it to the right. The puppies had no say of it. The puppies had to endure going around in a circle. And for a gregarious puppy, that might've been great. For a neutral puppy, maybe, eh, it's okay. For a scared puppy, you're just making them more scared of people because they're in a situation where they're being passed around and they can't escape. So here's the scary thing and I can't get away from it. There's many examples of that that you think sound good, you know, when you first hear about it and then you think, no, the puppy's got no choice here. They can't get away. If they're scared, you're, you're in trouble. So that's why it's so important to understand that body language, because for some puppies going to Home Depot and being in the cart could be a really good socialization outing, but another puppy, it could be like going to a root canal for us. So, so that's why understanding like, is my puppy enjoying this? Oh, I think I need to back off is why you have that whole chapter. Absolutely. And that's something that owners need throughout the course of their dog's life. I, I, you know, one of the things I specialize in is aggression. And that's a very, very important skill is to learn to read those little whispers of I'm not comfortable with this. So the puppy or dog doesn't have to escalate their behavior to get your attention. So we want to listen to those little tugs on our shirt, if you will. I'm not cool with this. I'm not cool with this. I never met a little girl with a, you know, a shark fin on her bike helmet before, and I'm a little nervous. We want to learn to read that so the puppy doesn't have to, re or dog doesn't have to resort to barking or growling or lunging. So regardless of the age of your dog, um, you really want to do yourself a favor. I mean, we're bringing this animal of an entirely different species into our home. 
And we, you know, most of us, you know, at the beginning think, oh, well, you know, they understand all my words because they get happy when I say, do you want to go for a walk and hold up the leash, right? So they know what I'm saying, but they really don't. And they only have one language to communicate their feelings to us. And that's through their body language. You know, actually, I think body language comes up in every podcast episode we do. Everybody we interview says, please pay attention to the body language. So it's really important to be educated about it. You know, from my perspective, I think we need information out there for owners. And that's what we tried to do in the book that's accessible, um, not just photographic examples, but video examples. We have some uh, dogs uh, in the book who are you know, diagnosed with anxiety and fear. So um, owners can see video examples of atypical behavior and see where their dog falls in that too. Most of us think we can recognize relaxed and friendly dogs, but you know, there's a lot of really subtle signs that owners sometimes don't always pick up on. So that's, that's why we dedicate an entire chapter to body language in the book. And it never would have happened without a without Marge's videos, which I think are so helpful. They show actual people doing these things, learning how to do these things, making mistakes sometimes, just like any of us is gonna do when we start off. And I love the videos and that's why we did everything we could to make them part of the book. So it sounds like from this discussion of flooding that it's, we know it's possible to do too much too soon, too fast. What about doing too little? And I ask because there are many rescues that have no pause on the ground rule until the puppy is past their vaccinations. Um, and can you talk about this dilemma a little bit, the disease risk versus the socialization, especially for rescues and shelters? Um, how do we figure all of this out? Oh, absolutely. And that is such a great question. And I, I want to start out by saying, oh, we appreciate the rescue groups and the shelters and all the volunteers so, so much. I was did a lot of work with Ridgeback Rescue. We adopted dogs through there. We did some fostering. So, you know, I totally understand that. Um, and I, you know, from a personal perspective, I can't even begin to understand what it would be like to lose a puppy to an infectious disease like parvo. I have not experienced that. So I imagine something so traumatic would influence your behavior going forward. So I understand the reason that, um, though, that groups put those uh, procedures in place initially. But what I will say is that we have learned a lot, especially, um, about the risk of disease transmission. Um, Eileen and I are not veterinarians. We, you know, we say that up front, but we do refer back to what veterinarians and other scientists have researched and have shared with people. And we know that um, the risk of behavioral problems, which are the number one cause of relinquishment to shelters, um, are also the number one cause of death under dog, uh, number one cause of death in dogs under three years of age. So not infectious diseases, the number one cause, 
but behavioral problems, the number one cause. So it really is um, a risk assessment and a, you know, then that's really what we're balancing, keeping our puppies safe versus um, keeping our puppies safe in the here and now versus keeping them safe and in their homes down the road. So out of those two, the bigger risk is behavioral problems. And I, unfortunately, again, I see it all the time and it's heartbreaking um, for people waiting until the shots are completed or two weeks out until the shots are completed and it's too late. The puppy has, you know, that critical window has closed. And that doesn't mean behavior can't change, but it's going to take a lot more work on the part of the owner. Um, there is so much owners can and guardians can do at home to start the socialization process. So, and there's ways to do it safely. So again, you know, I love my puppy as much as everybody else loved their puppies, but I, I knew it was critically important to get him out into the world. So I sought safe ways to do that and ways to minimize risk. We go into a lot of detail in the book, but some of the things, you know, that first week after they've had their first set of shots where you really do want to keep them home, um, there's so much to introduce them to novelty, sounds, handling, you know, family members, neighbors, there's things you can do right in your home to start that process. And then when I did start exposing my puppy to the world, I didn't take them to the pet store. I didn't take them to big box stores. Uh, you know, I looked for quieter areas that were not frequented by off-leash dogs. Um, and I often, if I was going to take him to the sports field, I took a big blanket and I put that down and we sat on the blanket and we had yummy treats and watched the people walk by. You can stay in your car if you're worried about the pandemic, but, getting your puppy to new locations is critically important. I often look for paved parking lots like church and school and business parking lots when they're closed and where it's allowed to just get out of the car, play a little bit, watch, you know, the traffic go by, all kinds of things. Just experience novelty or going new places as a super fun thing to do. Yeah, there are, it seems like there are a lot of ways to just get creative and keep your puppy safe from disease while also exposing them to new, new things. I love the paved surfaces. You know, if I, one of the places we went to was a little strip mall, you know, that's not typically frequented by dogs off leash because there's a lot of cars coming and going. Again, it depends on your area. But great opportunities. We always start in the back parking lot away from everything. When puppies tell me they're relaxed and happy in that environment, then we move a little closer to the action, maybe a courtyard. And time of day plays a big impact on intensity too. So there's a lot of ways, there's a myriad of ways that you can expose your puppy or any puppy to the world and minimize their risk to infectious disease. We've come so far with that. Um, it, we, and we really know that we're setting the puppy up at a, for a disadvantage. That puppy, and particularly puppies that are coming from a shelter environment, 
Um, chances are the dam was stressed. So that puts the puppies at more risk. They, they are not starting as blank slates when owners adopt them at eight weeks of age. There's things that come pre-programmed in um, either through genetics, breed genetics, or you know, if the dam was stressed due to a shelter environment. So those puppies, the ones in foster care and in shelter, they need the socialization more critically than a puppy who was, you know, perhaps whelped by a breeder and came up on puppy culture and had all that novelty. Those puppies are more at risk. And that's why the foster families, oh, they're such treasures because they're stepping up. They're taking care of these puppies. They're taking responsibility for them. And they have a chance to make up some of the deficits that maybe the puppies that were born in a shelter environment or a stressed environment, simply by, you know, just pairing those new experiences with food and play has such a big payoff. It goes beyond just taking care of them in the moment. They really have the opportunity to influence that puppy's success for the rest of their lives. Oh my gosh, that's so incredible to think and what an opportunity for those fosters. And while you were speaking, I started to think of, we had an interview with Dr. McConnell about resilience. And what you're speaking to is really, we are building resilient dogs by investing in the puppies. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the, the wonderful people who step up and volunteer to foster these litters they're going to interact with these puppies anyway. And if we could just direct those interactions a little bit, they have the opportunity to, again, make up for some of the deficits or, you know, most of those puppies aren't starting on even ground if they were raised in a stressful environment or um, they are starting in the hole and they have the opportunity to build those puppies up and shape how they see the rest of the world just by making the most of the interactions that they're having with them anyway. So a little direction there can make a big difference for the puppies. It's such critical information to get out there because every single person who volunteers in a foster situation or works in a shelter, they're doing it because they want these dogs to succeed. So if we can just give them this little bit of like the newest educate, the newest science, because five years ago, I remember it was a hundred people, a hundred days. And so with the best intentions, I was exposing my puppies to a hundred people, hundred days. Oh gosh, I haven't met someone with the backpack yet. I got to go find some with a backpack. And now I have a house on a fairly like consistently traffic street, but not overwhelming with a fenced front yard where they can see, but they're still like 20 feet. And I've found that to be such an incredible treasure that I, as much as yeah. I want to move, it's like the <laughs> perfect foster situation for puppies to sit on my little porch and just watch I, every single thing in the world passes my house in one day in a 24 hour period. So, you know, I, I think that's the new science that you are bringing to the world with your book. Oh, well, thank you so much. And, you know, well, I've done volunteer work with um, 
shelters uh, and rescue groups that are local to me. And the very first thing I offer to do for them is an overview on canine body language, because it all goes back to that. You know, even in a whole litter, if you're managing a litter, you know, there's some puppies who are up like, oh, look at that person on the bike. And there's some puppies who are hanging back and we want to rescue, you know, they're not a whole unit. They're all individuals. And we want to rescue that puppy that's hanging back. And we want to do some interventions for them. So speaking of rescue puppies, so many puppies are transported during the sensitive period, which is a hugely stressful experience for any dog, let alone a puppy who has even less idea of what could possibly be going on. What advice do you have for people who are doing transport, for people who are sending puppies, for people who are receiving puppies to ensure that they have a positive experience? That's a great question. And, you know, I would do my best. I can't ensure that they have a good experience, but I can set up the environment to the best of my ability to try and make that happen. So what I would look for is, or what I would try to do is set up like a nice quiet, perhaps a crate that's covered up, um, keep interactions to a minimum, you know, try not to show everybody the cute little puppy and pass it around and hold it. But to try to keep it, you know, disruptions and distractions to a minimum to the best of their ability. If it's a multi-day transport, try to keep the puppy on a schedule and give them opportunities to, you know, stretch and eliminate. Um, I know the urge for, gosh, for me, and I, I imagine a lot of people when they see a cute little puppy is they just want to pick it up and love on it. Um, particularly a puppy that may have come from a hardship situation or a dog, and we just want to show it love. But um, for a puppy who's a little worried or stressed, or maybe even a little worried or stressed about you, um, just holding it to show it love could be making it more stressed. So again, you know, I would let that puppy drive those interactions and if it you know if it's looking a little scared and kind of wanting to hang out on its own during transport I would allow it to do that would you recommend something like um, giving them a little puppy kong to have some soothing behaviors to create more positive association with the food absolutely and the transport? Oh, love that. Love that. Libby. That's, uh, that's absolutely what, you know, I would recommend. And that's typically what we do in the book. We have a video, a little um, photo of a puppy with a food toy in the crate. And I was told the puppy didn't travel well in the car. And, you know, I took her to my house and she like licked that food toy the whole entire time. So giving them something to do and minimizing the stress on them. Absolutely. So fast forwarding several months in a rescue dog's life, often we are getting our dogs after the critical socialization period and we have no control or often we have no knowledge of how they were socialized. Do you have any suggestions on how rescues and shelters can work with a dog who is maybe an adolescent 
but missed the socialization. This is Eileen. I'll take that one. Um, both Marge and I have personally had dogs like that. Um, and we kind of funny, not funny, <laughs> joke in the book about my feral puppy, Clara, who we said it, we did exactly the same things, only it took us 100 times longer. It really was 100 times longer. And so she's not the best poster child for that because lots of puppies and adolescents turn out to have more resilience than she did. But it's the same thing. You take where they are right now, you observe them, and you start where they're comfortable. And if that means starting where you would normally start with an eight-week-old, you start there. And that's hard to do with an older puppy. They look like they can do more. And look, they're, they're physically more capable. And, and But if they are fearful and unsocialized, it's a, it's a game of catch up from there. And there are some wonderful um, success stories like that, where it's like, it's kind of linear for a while and you're crawling up and all of a sudden the, the dog thinks, oh, the world is okay, that can happen. And then you can have one like mine where it's linear for her whole life. And she can do lots of things that quote unquote normal dogs can't do because of all the exposures we gave her but she will still never be like a dog you could have if you had company over. <laughs> you know, she could not visit with strangers in a, in a comfortable way. But the point is to take the dog where they are right now. And if that means, if, if they're in literally in a shelter, if that means walking by and not looking at them and tossing a treat in every time you go by, that's where you start. If they're back in the corner, you do not try to force them out. You know, I, I, don't, need, I don't need to tell you all that, but um, we're, we're tempted, right? We think, gosh, all we have to do is love them. We'll just go in there and we'll hug them and we'll show them that humans are great. Well, it, it just doesn't always work that way. It usually doesn't work that way. So start where they are, however scared they are, try to make whatever exposure they get under that threshold where it's not gonna scare them. Toss a lot of food is, is my idea. And Marge may have something to add here as well. Yeah, and I will say that, um, you know, the socialization that we're talking about is the, the socialization that hap happens during the sensitive period for socialization. By the time the dog is an adolescent, you can pretty much tell the 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 socialization that they had during that critical period in their development because you know are they affiliative are they social are they wary and what I see a lot we moved to a more rural area is I see a lot of fear in adolescent dogs and that's most of my phone calls whether I was here in a more um, urban environment came when the puppies hit adolescence. And typically things that they were just a little bit unsure of when they were little tiny baby puppies in their sensitive period for socialization, if they didn't get those positive associations during that time period, when they hit adolescence, all of a sudden it's either barking, growling and lunging or frantic behavior like that out of control, over exuberance, jumping, mouthing, all of that craziness. Um, and to me, that's more behavior modification at that point than it is socialization because we're still going to follow the same things outlined in the book. We're going to look for low intensity locations. We're going to pair those things with food and play. 
but um, the dog's behavior is going to tell us what their socialization experiences were like. And if they're described as timid or shy or reserved, um, you know, with certain, you know, minor breed exceptions, um, then they're telling you that they didn't form positive associations. So one thing I would just love for your listeners to take, if they could only take one thing home from this podcast, okay, two things home from this podcast. One would be canine body language. And the other would be to know that exposure alone is not socialization. Socialization is the process of creating positive associations for the puppy with the things he's going to encounter during the course of his lifetime. That's so important to understand. So important. Let's talk belly rubs. I was struck by how specific you were about belly rubs being something that we should really take notice of and not immediately jump in and start rubbing their bellies. So can you speak to belly rubs? I'm going to go here first because I have a confession. Um, My dog, when she was nine years old, I had still not determined that whether she, when she put up a leg, whether she meant please rub my belly or please back off. Because when a dog rolls on its back or if it's on its side and puts its leg up, you know, we always interpret that, oh, they want their belly rubbed. Um, And it's very hard to tell sometimes, but what we need to do, what has helped me the most is look at the big picture. Like Marge likes to say, you know, a puppy doesn't usually run in, in the middle of the room and throw itself on the back and say, oh, I would love a belly rub. That's, that is not normally what you would do when you're excited and meeting somebody. If a puppy throws itself on its back, when you approach it, it's usually nervous. That's a sign of, please don't hurt me. It's an appeasement sign. And so many people, including myself, have uh, misinterpreted this so many times. But I look at the big picture. I discovered, I knew that there were two situations. I was trying actively to tell with my dog, does she or does she not want me to rub her belly in this situation? And finally, I put it together that when this was happening, I was walking towards her. She was a feral puppy. She was always sensitive to being walked directly at, excuse that sentence. And if I approached her, if she was lying on the couch, she'd flip her leg up. And it turns out, I took a video so I could see the rest of her body language. It turns out that was not a, hi, Eileen, I would love it if you'd rub my belly. It's a, oh gosh, I wish you wouldn't come forward so fast and so and so close. My own dog. And so it, it can really happen. And uh, March has a couple minutes to say something too, but that's my, my contribution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think of it, you know, I, when I want my puppies to display positive, um, confident body postures when they're greeting people. Uh, and puppies are, you know, remember when they're in their sensitive period for socialization, they're primed to be more curious. So they often rush in to greet people. And then what happens? The person looms, I mean, leans over top of them right over into their space bubble and puts a lot of pressure on the puppy, a lot of spatial pressure and a lot of social pressure. And at that point, puppies will oftentimes roll over 
or if we make a big to do about greeting them and all this exuberance that can be over hi how are you we talk about gleepy in the book right is that is it really gleepy um and i think you know yes can dogs like belly rubs i think of it kind of like a neck rub right like so if i'm chilling on the couch and my husband comes up and says, would you like a neck rub? I would be like, oh yeah, that would be great. But if I were at the farmer's market or out in town and some stranger came up and said, hey, I'm going to rub your neck. I'd be like, whoa, back off, dude, I don't know you, right? So same thing. If you're, you know, chilling on the floor with your puppy and you were just playing and your puppy's all loose and floppy and rolls over and you start scratching their belly that's a good chance that your puppy wants that belly rub um but i don't like to see belly rubs during greetings i don't like puppies to roll over during greetings i want confident body postures i have a three second rule for greeting i like them to, to you know to greet for a few seconds and then be called back reinforced and then sent back to greet if they want to, because oftentimes the greeter will get overly familiar the longer the puppy stays. It starts with one hand, then it's two, and then the puppy's up in their face. And we, we talk more about that in the book, but yeah, good greetings for puppies. I wanna see confident body postures when puppies are meeting new people and rolling over onto your back and showing your belly is not a confident body posture. That's great to know. Okay, let's do, let's pick three myths to bust. Em, do you want to go first? Number one, having people feed your puppy if they feel scared. <laughs> Myth busting. Your puppy might go up to the person because they have the food, but that does not mean that they're comfortable with the situation. You can scare them more doing that. All right, Libby, number two. Putting treats all over a scary object so your puppy explores it. Same thing. Same thing, right? We talked about we want the puppy to approach the thing, then get something marvelous. If you put cookies all over something scary, you're going to see a puppy that's going to stretch to get up there and grab a cookie and run. And then grab a cookie and run. Is that a good positive, um, <laughs> positive experience? No, it's not. They're being put in a difficult situation where they're trying to get something they like, but they're still scared of the thing. We have a section in the book uh, called approach avoidance. So the puppy wants the yummy food, but he's scared of what the food is on. So the closer he gets, the more scared he gets. And um, that's not what we're looking for. We're trying to build confidence at the puppy's pace. Okay, myth number three, take your puppy everywhere. Oh, that's a great one. Um, one of my favorites. And it would be great if your puppy was displaying relaxed and happy body language. So the, the problem with that myth is that we're not progressing at the puppy's pace. We're going by our agenda. So we want to start small, low intensity locations with not a lot going on when the puppy's relaxed and happy in those situations then we can build but it's not i'm going to take you with me everywhere i go because i could be you know making you more afraid okay we just have to we can't skip the if you have a dog at home then your dog can socialize your puppy to be fine with other dogs no <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
that's, that's one dog. If you've met one person in the world, does that mean that you're comfortable with everybody? No, that dog becomes part of your family. That's wonderful if the puppy's comfortable with them, but it does not predict at all whether when they see a boxer or a, a very fast moving border collie or any other myriad dogs in the world, whether they're gonna be comfortable with them too. Those dogs are strangers to them. Now on the flip side, meet unknown dogs on walks or at dog parks to socialize your puppy. Oh boy, I never <laughs> let puppies um, meet dogs that I don't know. One, their vaccination history and two, that they're good with puppies because not all dogs are good with puppies. It's like assuming that every person is going to be good with a baby, right? Like it doesn't work that way. And other dogs may be injured or um, sore or achy. Um, and again, not all dogs are appropriate with puppies. So if I wanna make sure that my um, puppy is having a good experience, one, I have to make sure that the dog is vaccinated and not passing along any infectious diseases. And two, that the dog has a good history with puppies. The last myth, take your puppy to puppy class to socialize them. Oh, that's a great myth. And, I, and our response to that is, well, it depends, right? It depends on the, the methods of the puppy class and what they're focusing on. We go into that in great detail in the book because we want owners to find the right experiences for their puppies. A puppy class can be a great way for puppies to experience other puppies their own age and to learn about bite inhibition and to learn play skills, it can be a wonderful opportunity. The flip side of that is a puppy class that is not run well can be a nightmare for some puppies. Um, you know, things we look for in dog dog or puppy dog interactions are reciprocal play, a puppy who is a little nervous or hiding under a chair should be allowed to do so. Puppies who are over exuberant and maybe a little more physical uh, than other puppies would, be, would like should be monitored. And the interactions have to be monitored very, very closely. Um, to make sure that the puppies are having good experiences. I am not a believer or a fan of let them work it out because puppies can learn the opposite of what they, what we want them to learn if they're being bullied by another puppy. And I will say that, you know, puppy play is very rough and tumble. Um, but you, what you look for is um, a reciprocal play. And when I say that, if you know, one puppy's on top when they're wrestling, then they take a little break, and then the other puppy is on top wrestling. Or if one is the chasey and one is the chaser, maybe that switches in a little bit. And I think good play skills, you know, I intervene a lot during puppy play uh, because I think to a degree they can be taught. So I interrupt puppy, puppy play frequently. I want them to have those little breaks in play so they don't become over aroused. Um, and I want to make sure they're having a good time. The other thing is that if the puppy class is ideal, it's wonderful, it's perfect, it's still not sufficient to socialize a puppy. Yes. <laughs> it's not yes. going to teach, teach you. your puppy how to ride in an elevator. It's not going to teach your puppy how to act during Christmas or 
Hanukkah or any holiday when you have family over there or at a dog show or anything else. It's going to teach your dog, ideally, how to be with other puppies and maybe be exposed to some other fun stuff along the way. It's not sufficient, even if it's a great class. So finding some appropriate puppies to very carefully socialize your puppy to or appropriate adults would be a key for any foster or new puppy guardian? Absolutely. And not just puppies, but other, you know, uh, adult dogs of different breeds or different types, you know, little fluffy dogs, dogs with tails who stand up ideally, or, you know, again, just watching them walk by having, you know, that great opportunity on the front porch and pairing those associations, not just watching, but pairing those associations with food and play. Okay, that's great. Well, I think we're at an hour. So we just enjoyed speaking with you so much and we'd love to have you back because this is really a preventionist program. I think if you could only get one book on how to raise a puppy, this would be the one I would recommend. Thank you so much. I do want to mention also that we offer... The book is available in paperback and also um, ebook, which I think is very user friendly because you can go seamlessly right to the videos um, that accompany the text. And we offer um, bulk discounts on both the paperbacks and the ebook. I had a Humane Society uh, reach out to us and they. Um, purchased a large quantity of uh, ebooks and they're including them in their puppy packages for puppies that are adopted. So that's, yeah, a great way to set the owners up for success. So before we let you go, where can people find out more about your book and also, um, you know, you as dog trainers individually? Uh, our website for the puppy book is easy to remember. It's puppysocialization.com. And people can purchase the book there, find links to other ways to purchase. Um, we talk about our bulk orders there. Not only that, we are developing it into an educational site where we are also um, posting a lot of articles that are accessible. They're not paywalled or anything. They're out there for people to read and pass around. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Uh, you can find me at the Eileen and Dogs blog and Marge at rewardedbehaviorcontinues.com. Eileen and Marge, thank you so much for your time today. I learned a ton and I know that our listeners will learn a ton from this. We just are so grateful for the work you're doing and for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. To find out more about our programming and adoptable rescue dogs, you can visit summitdogrescue.org. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and to Alex Lee Ammons and For the Love Media for graphics, production, and editing. See you soon on Pod to the Rescue.